Hello, you're listening to On Israel in Al Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. The top commander of the Israeli army, General Aviv Kuchavi, recently instructed the, the Air Force to renew its drills for an attack on Iran, according to a report in uh, Israeli television. Indeed, the new state budget includes billions of shekels for restoring and upgrading the plan to destroy Iran's nuclear program, an option Israel had prepared for but seemed to be abandoned. Concern over Iran's foot-dragging in negotiations with the world powers and an assessment that the Iranians are playing for time until they are closer to having a bomb has prompted vigorous Israeli activity recently, not seen since the early years of the last decade. Israel is also concerned about Iran's conventional cap- capabilities. Meeting with uh, Russian President Putin two days ago in Sochi, Israeli Prime Minister Bennett was reportedly given a green light for continued Israeli Air Force activity over Syria. Israel has been uh, taking advantage of uh, this freedom of movement to prevent Iranian entrenchment in Syria, but Russia was said to be challenging this activity in recent months. Last week, Israeli fighter planes reportedly carried out at least two air raids in Syria, and uh, a former Syrian parliament member was engaged in building infrastructure for Hezbollah on the Syrian Golan Heights was assassinated by a sniper. At the same time, Shiite militia, inspired by Iran, reportedly attacked the American Al-Tanf base in Syria near its border with Jordan and Iraq, seeming to indicate that Iran's patience with Israeli attacks on Syrian targets has run out. We'll be discussing these and other security issues related to Gaza, tensions in the West Bank, and also perhaps to Turkish claims about the arrest of a Mossad spy network with today's guest, the highly respected veteran military affairs analyst, Alon Ben David of Channel 13 News. He joins us right after this short break. What in the hell's going on? You ever look at the news and wonder what the hell is going on? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. We often think that when we look at the news these days. That's why we started our podcast called... What the Hell is Going On? We bring you amazing interviews with experts who know exactly what the hell is going on. Nobel Prize winning researchers. Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. And even presidents. Danny and I will break it all down for you. I'll tell you how Danny could be more interesting. And I'll explain to you why Mark is wrong. So tune in so we can all find out what, what the, the hell, hell is, is going, going on. on. happy to say hello to my friend and colleague, uh, Channel 13's uh, military and security analyst, Alon Ben David. Shalom, Alon, and thank you for joining us here in uh, On Israel in Al Monitor. Shalom, Alon. Shalom, Ben. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And let's uh, start and dive into business. Uh, my first question is uh, about reports in recent weeks that suggest that Israel has dusted off its military attack plans on Iran's nuclear infrastructure. And the Air Force has resumed practicing various attack models. Does Israel really have a military option on Iran, even now that the Iranians have fortified much of their nuclear production, making it much harder to destroy than when Israel seriously entertained a military option a decade ago? 
Well, I believe that we're going to hear a lot about Israel's military option and the way that Israel is trying to brush it up in the coming years. Uh, and it should, because basically Israel abandoned at 2012 um, practicing and preparing a viable military option. And Netanyahu decided to do that under the request uh, of the U.S. administration. And right now, the military and the Air Force are doing what they're supposed to do and preparing at least an option that would be presented on the table of the Israeli decision makers. However, however, having said that, if you look at Israel's military options vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Iranian nuclear program, they are very, very limited. At the end of the day, Iran is a dispersed military nuclear program, and the ability to launch a strike that would stop the Iranian program like it did in uh, Iraq in 1981 or in Syria in 2007 is almost impossible. I mean, Israel can launch a strike today, and I believe that it can inflict serious damage on the Iranian nuclear facilities, yet it cannot take away the knowledge because bombs are, are, in a, very, are a very effective tool uh, to separate people's uh, heads from their bodies. But if your head stays attached, what you have inside your head no bomb would take away. And if the Iranians know how to enrich uranium, and they do, and if they know how to build ballistic missiles, and they do, and if they know how to make a design of a nuclear device, and they're on the verge of knowing, we can bomb them until next year. At the end of the day, we cannot take away the knowledge. So Israel military option, and we're mostly talking about the Air Force, but you can imagine that it has other aspects, such as ground forces operations and secret operations, that could be launched against Iran, but the uh, effect will be very limited, assessed in the best scenario in a two years delay for the Iranian program. So if I may follow up on the question, if we remember what ha whatever happened 10 years ago when the military option was on the table, and if you'll ask Ehud Barak, then Defense Minister, and Benjamin Netanyahu, then Prime Minister, they will tell you that talking and demonstrating and, and, and polishing this option mounted the pressure on the United States and the P5 plus one to have this uh, pressure on Iran with the sanctions and everything. So maybe we see now another round of the same stunt. Uh, and we, we didn't say yet that five or seven billion shekels were, were uh, put in the last uh, Israeli state budget towards this uh, option. Well, right now, I think we're doing the same thing. Uh, we are investing in the next two years, five billion shekels in Israel's military option, three billion this year, two billion the next year, some for exercise, some for new equipment that would give us longer range capabilities. You will see also the Israel Air Force starting to train again above the Mediterranean in flying long range missions and preparing for such a strike. Yes, and this is something that Israel should present on the world stage and that the world should know that yes, Israel is developing a military option, however limited, because it needs to be there and urge decision makers, mostly in the US, but also in the P5 others uh, to, to make a decision and, and bring the Iranian nuclear program into some sort of resolution. At the end of the day, Israel must have a military option. And I'll tell you another thing, it is my sense that if an Israeli prime minister, whoever that might be, find himself in the position where the only thing that separates the Ayatollah regime from a nuclear weapon is an Israeli strike, I believe that Israel will take the dive 
as hard as it is, and we'll try to stop them if we if all other options are exhausted. So we need to have one, and we need to make it as as good as we can, however limited. And if I will complete this uh, this assessment, even if this dive will cause a, a, an all-out war between Israel and Iran, and I, I agree with you totally, there is no Israeli prime minister that will accept or agree a, a nuclear Iran. And until now, we, we, we discussed the Israeli intentions. Let's move to the, to the other side. And I want to ask you, what is the most relevant assessment of Iran's intentions? Israel initially believed that the return to the nuclear agreement was certain. Then it started questioning its assessment, and now the prevailing view is that Iran doesn't want to return to the deal. How do you see Iran's game plan? What it seems to be the, the case right now is that Iran is accumulating as many capabilities as they can, advancing in all areas that they can, in order to get back to the negotiation table with as much capabilities and as little as, little as possible uh, as, as little option as possible to reverse those capabilities. So they are accumulating knowledge. They have no decision to develop nuclear weapons and they know the implications of developing such weapons. So they are just amassing capabilities. Now, getting back to the old nuclear deal seems almost irrelevant because a lot has happened since 2015 and many capabilities have advanced since. But at the end of the day, this is the only thing on the table right now. So I, I cannot envision a new nuclear deal. I cannot envision any other world effort uh, to, to tackle Iran's intention because it, today what we're seeing in the global arena is that there is no international functioning system. There's no system that the, like the one that existed in 2012 and 2015 that could launch uh, all superpowers sanctions against the Iranians and bring the Iranians uh, and basically coerce them to accept a deal. <clears throat> so right now what we have is just a 2015 deal. And as, as bad as it is, even those who stood against that deal within the Israeli defense establishments uh, six years ago are, are, would accept that deal in, 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 in a warm embrace these days because right now it's better than the current situation. Taking the Iranians back at least to the amounts of fissile material that they had in 2015 is basically the only and best deal that we can think of right now. I want to ask you something about the, the American administration. Do you think there is a chance that the Israeli side, and we saw Prime Minister Bennett and a, a, a Minister of Foreign Affairs Lapid and the National Security Advisor Yal Khulata in talks in Washington, and do you think it's possible to persuade the Biden administration to act like the previous administration acted, or maybe in my words, to act like a superpower, to, to present a, a viable military option on the table? Uh, we saw, uh, I think last week, uh, something was published in the United States about new generation of uh, of buster uh, bunkers uh, penetration uh, bombs in the United States. Do you think we, there is a chance we will see a movement towards this uh, this kind of uh, behavior from the American side? I'm I'm afraid we won't because if you look at the current administration, most of the key figures are people that took part in drafting the previous agreement. Many of them consider it to be a monument of diplomatic work. 
whether it's the chief of the CIA, Bill Burns, or Wendy Sherman, the deputy secretary of state, and many others have been part of the previous negotiations in the previous decades. And I think that the, emotionally, they feel committed to the work that they've done and they consider the, the agreement to be a pinnacle of their statehood. So it is my impression that it's going to be very hard to persuade the Americans to do something. And on top of that, you see the, the general aversion of the current uh, administration to, to use force and, uh, and the total detachment of the US from the Middle East and, and uh, everything around the Middle East. Basically, what we're seeing is that the new administration's agenda is the three Cs. It's China, it's COVID, and it's climate. They have no interest beyond these three Cs, and they do not want to deal with the Middle East. Iran is, appears to be, in their eyes, a nuisance that they need to clear away from the table so they can approach the more serious issues. So I think Israel will do its best to persuade them. But at the end of the day, I'm afraid that the chances are very low. All right. I want to ask you something about the finance minister, Lieberman, that said in an interview a few days ago that uh, the war between Israel and Iran was just a matter of time and not much time. Is this a typical Lieberman slip of the tongue or a sober assessment? After all, the two sides have been fighting a low-intensity war on land, sea, and cyberspace for years. Well, I believe that you're a greater expert on Lieberman than I am. But I do not, personally, I do not envision a direct conflict between Israel and Iran beyond the known arenas that we have been describing in the last few years, whether it's Syria, whether it's, uh, it's the Red Sea, whether it's the cyber uh, realm, but a direct conflict between Israel and Iran is something that I find hard to envision. But I bear in mind that the, the military monster that Iran created in Lebanon in the form of Hezbollah was basically created with one intention in mind. It is to deter Israel from launching a strike on Iranian nuclear facilities, and if Israel is to launch a strike on Iran, then Hezbollah will be the punishment. I do not believe that Iran will engage Israel in a direct conflict, and I do not believe that Iran will use the force of Hezbollah against Israel and all of its force uh, in any other scenario than an Israeli strike on Iran, Iranian soil. So I believe that we'll see the continuation of this low-intensity conflict between Israel and Iran, but not turning into a direct one unless Israel decides to launch a strike on Iran's nuclear facilities. Okay, let's move to, the, to what we call the, the war between the wars. The regime change in Israel does not seem to have affected the, this uh, war between the wars, meaning Israel's low-profile military activity against Hezbollah in Iranian and uh, entrenchment in uh, Syria generally, and especially on the Golan Heights border. Just last week, three attacks were attribu attributed to Israel. Do these attacks have any effect? Have they been delaying the entrenchment and other anti-Israeli projects as, such as Hezbollah's production of uh, precision rockets? It's very hard to measure what would happen if we weren't launching those strikes. I can say that in the, in the matter of Syria, entrenchments in Syria, yes, I believe that we have caused a delay. It's like mowing the grass. I mean, you have to uh, continue uh, maintaining this effort and not neglect it because it keeps growing otherwise. On the issue of uh, Hezbollah precision capabilities, it seems that, yes, we have created some 
a degree of damage to Hezbollah intentions. But at the end of the day, what we are seeing in Lebanon is a greater effort by Hezbollah to start producing those uh, precision missiles from A to Z, from, from uh, origin materials all the way up to the complete missile. And this is, this is something that Israel currently does not dare to deal with because Israel understands the uh, risks of launching a strike on Hezbollah capabilities inside Lebanon. It's part of the mutual deterrence that we have with Hezbollah. Israel is refraining from launching strikes into Lebanon. But I believe that every month, the possibility of such a conflict is becoming bigger because at the end of the day, you know, we're basically like the frog in, in the warming water and we need to decide when it's going to start to boil and then jump out. Otherwise, we'll, we'll find ourselves fried in those water. Hezbollah is advancing. Uh, Hezbollah is acquiring uh, precision capabilities. And once it will have a critical mass, I would say beyond 1,000 uh, heavy, precise uh, missiles, that could pose a, a strategic threat on Israel, like one that we never faced before. So this is something that is constantly under deliberation within the military ranks. What is the right time? The human tendency is always to defer those kinds of decisions because it's a very unpleasant decision. But at some point we'll have to say enough is enough. We cannot let them advance anymore. And then we, we must take the risk and start dealing with, with what they are erecting on Lebanese soil uh, with the help of the Iranians, but not with the direct transfer of, uh, of ready-made missiles, but by producing those missiles on Lebanese soil. Maybe this is what uh, Finance Minister Lieberman meant when he uh, spoke about war. Maybe he knows something we don't about this red line you ju you're just mentioning. And I want to ask you about the regime in Iran. It has also changed, wiping out uh, any re remnants of the reformists and pragmatists, such as former President Rouhani. Do you see the new regime refusing to continue the policy of uh, containment and instead considering a direct response similar, for example, to the precise and effective missile attack on the Aramco oil installations in Saudi Arabia? Well, Iran clearly is becoming much more daring in the last few years, whether it's that strike that you mentioned on, on Saudi Arabia, whether it's the strikes on American uh, military installations in Iraq and in Syria, is Iran is willing to take more and greater risks. You know, traditionally, since the end of the Iran-Iraq war, there was a, a belief or, or a school of thought within the Israeli intelligence that Iran, after being burned in the Iran-Iraq war, does not want to engage in a conflict that involves Iranian territory. That seemed to have changed. The Iranians are daring to launch strikes from their own territory to attack uh, uh, merchant ships in the Red Sea and in the, in the uh, Arabian Sea to launch strikes against neighboring countries like Saudi Arabia. Clearly, Iran is ready to take more risks. In the background, you have to bear in mind that we are about to see a transition of power in Iran. And the, the Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, a man of 82 years old, not a healthy man. He suffers from cancer, prostate cancer. I don't know how long would stay with us but I believe that he is preparing the uh, transfer of power to, to his successor, Ibrahim Raisi. Uh, and that's part of what we are seeing in the region. It's a much bolder Iran with greater areas of influence. 
and Iran that is taking a more proactive position than it used to be. It's not only trying to expand, it's now willing to retaliate on attacks on it. So the, the scenario of Iran launching a UAV strike, for example, from Iranian soil all the way to Israeli territory, if they believe that they can succeed, I think we need to be prepared for that. And we are investing a lot, by the way, in, in creating a defense alignment that would enable us to detect all those uh, air-breathing munitions that the Iranians have, like uh, uh, cruise missiles and, and UAVs. Yes, they are preparing that. They would always prepare, prefer to do it from uh, foreign soil, like Syrian territory or Iraqi, but they are willing to do it from Iran as well. And yes, we are seeing a much bolder Iran, sensing the weakness of the current American administration. And unless we'll see a tougher position from the international community, I believe that this will continue. And when you just mentioned the alliances that Israel is uh, working on, I, th- I, I guess you meant Emirates, Bahrain, Azerbaijan. And do you think there is a chance to see uh, the same with uh, Saudi Arabia soon, somewhere? Uh, absolutely. You know, I used to think until recently that this is something that will not happen in the lifetime of King Salman. You know, being committed to the legacy of his, uh, of his brother, Fayed, uh, who said, you know, we will not progress with relations with, with Israel or, or open relations with Israel unless there will be a progress in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I believe that we might see a change there. I believe that the Saudis are also sensing the American weakness um, and they realize that Israel is a force that should be on their side and better join forces with Israel if we're looking at the Iranian threat in the region. And yes, I think that the breakthrough with Saudi Arabia is something that we can envision uh, within the lifetime of King Salman. And beyond that, you know, picturing Israeli Air Force fight- fighters landing in the UAE, training above the uh, Persian Gulf is no longer imaginary. You know, this is something that could happen. And I think even earlier than we think, I believe that we will see military cooperation tightening between Israel and its new partners for peace, Bahrain and UAE. And yes, a breakthrough with Saudi Arabia, I believe that is, it is within sight. It is fascinating what we are just uh, just said. I want to ask you some something about uh, Lebanon. Israel is obviously closely monitoring the situation in Lebanon and Nasrallah's tending in particular. Do the economic meltdown in Lebanon and the domestic tensions bring a potential clash with Hezbollah closer? Or do they distance it? And uh, um, another thing we just said or heard is that is, uh, Nasrallah is out of the bunker first time from uh, 2006? Well, Nasrallah finds himself in a very tough uh, political position inside Lebanon. It's being entangled in so many affairs from the uh, explosion in the port uh, to, uh, to, through other events that occurred inside Lebanon. And at the end of the day, I believe that it puts more restrictions on Hezbollah um, ambitions and desire to go into a conflict with Israel. Because, you know, I listen to those people Who demonstrate against Hezbollah. Yes, some of them are Christians, some of them are Sunni, but some of them are also Shiite. And you know, some of them are even Hezbollah voters. And they are telling Nasrallah, yes, we voted for you. Yes, we are Shiites. We go to the mosque. But you know, we would like to have a beer at the end of the day. We would like our wife to be able to go around in jeans. We do not want Iran here. We want this place to be like Greece, to be like Italy, 
we want Lebanon to have a good, Lebanese to have a good life. And that is something that I like. I like neighbors that want to live. I don't like neighbors that are willing to die for Iran. And the Lebanese public is basically telling the Nasrallah that don't drag us into wars that we are not part of. We are not here to serve Iran. We are here to take care of what is left from the Lebanese country. This is really fascinating. And look what happened to us that my final question is about the Gaza Strip. And I want yeah. to ask you to what extent has Israel succeeded in reducing tensions with Gaza by easing some of its restrictions as uh, such as increasing uh, the number of Gaza residents allowed to work in Israel and other similar goodwill gestures. Do you think a long-term ceasefire with Hamas, which has been uh, talked about for years, is still feasible? Right now, Israel has bought some time. Yes, by allowing uh, Gazans to come and work in Israel, 10,000 right now, and I wish this number would continue to grow. We are gaining time because these people are providing living to many families inside Gaza. But at the end of the day, we Israelis have placed an obstacle when we, when we attached the uh, resolution of the Israeli uh, MIAs uh, and, and the uh, prisoners that are being held in Gaza with the reconstruction of the Gaza Strip. At some point, we will have to make up our mind, we, I mean, the Israeli government, and decide are we going for a prisoner exchange or we're going to another conflict because at the end of the day, I believe that all Israeli politicians, whether it's Netanyahu or Bennett, they understand that the problem is in Gaza, the, the, the fundamental problems are not a military problems. At the end of the day, Gaza is suffering from no horizon uh, economically, no work. Uh, there, there's a crisis of energy. There's a crisis of fresh water. And these issues need needs to be dealt. Otherwise, we will go into another conflict. Now, we can continue on doing that. You know, we, we've launched uh, operations into Gaza in 2009, 2012, uh, 2014, 2021. I, I wonder how many times we will repeat the same action and expect for a different result. Unless we will address the fundamental problems of the Gaza Strip, 2.2 million people, 70% of them are below poverty line of the UN. That means below $2 a day of living. Unless we address that, we will continue to fight Gaza. And uh, I do hope that we'll find another way. Because yes, we can launch as many strike, strikes as we want against Hamas. And there's no match between Hamas capabilities and IDF capabilities. But all these conflicts that we have conducted against Hamas brought us at the end of the day to the same point. How do we deal with the fate of those 2.2 million Palestinians who are living there? What kind of future are we offering them, if at all? And if these people will stay thirsty with no electric power, with no job, yes, they will show up on our doorstep again. It's such a pity that the uh, late President Anwar Sadat did not want to get Gaza as well when he, we signed the peace agreement with him. And I will not let you go alone. Uh, well, he was a smart man. <laughs> yes, without asking you about the, the, the decision of Defense Minister Benny Gantz in the weekend, there is a political mess now in Israel about it. He declared six NGOs in the West Bank as illegal and uh, terror groups. NGOs that were connected by the Shabak to the Popular Front, which is a terror group. Do you think it, that this decision was uh, justified? 
Well, there's such a structured legal procedure that precedes any such decision that, that I find it hard to believe that it, this was decided only on on basis of a whim. You know, I haven't seen all the intelligence material, but in order for Israel to issue such warrants like it did in the last weekend, there is a very long structured legal procedure that, that advances such a decision. And I believe that if a decision like that was taken, all this information was shared with the U.S. So I don't understand completely the nature of this diplomatic clash that we heard about in the last weekend. But I believe that it's something that can be sought out with the U.S. administration. Alon Ben David, it was a fascinating talk. I thank you again very much for joining us here in uh, on Israeli Nile Monitor. We'll take a short break and be back right after this. Thank you, Alon. Toda raba. My pleasure. Anytime. I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's other audio series, On the Middle East with Andrew Parasolidi and Amberin Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspi. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thank you for staying with us. The conversation with Alon Ben David of Channel 13 News in Israel was full of information and headlines. Talking about uh, the new Iran, Iran uh, raises Iran, Ben David said it is bolder, more extreme, more daring. Its uh, appetite to uh, influence is bigger, the checks and balances are weaker and it is taking more risks. But David said that uh, sooner or later, uh, there will be a process of uh, transition of power in Tehran. Uh, the supreme leader uh, Ayatollah Khamenei is 82, and he is suffering from prostate cancer. And the, the next one in line is the president, Ibrahim Raisi. And uh, this is not such uh, good news for uh, pragmatists and uh, peace seekers from both sides. But after having said all that, uh, Ben David, uh, 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 don't think we are approaching all-out war between Israel and Iran. No one wants uh, this scenario, in, not in Tel Aviv nor in Tehran. And this uh, possibility of uh, an all-out war between Israel and Iran uh, it looks uh, far, very far away in the moment. But then uh, there is a catch, because uh, talking about the war between the wars that the IDF uh, is handling in the last few years, uh, Ben David said that uh, the Israel's effort to stop 
or delay the Hezbollah's precise missile, missile project can be the trigger that will ignite a future war between the sides. Uh, we cannot know where were we without this war between the wars. It's like mowing the grass, said Ben David, but we know that Israel cannot afford Hezbollah to cross the 1,000 precise missile uh, line. This is a strategic uh, change, and this can lead the sides to, to a war, and no one of us wants it to happen. I hope you uh, enjoyed or found it interesting, and I hope to find you here next week in Al Monitor in Own Israel. I'm Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. Take care.